Welcome to the Alliance Bible Church Podcast. We exist to be a healthy community, living and sharing the good news of Jesus with neighbors and nations. One word came to Sam Ballot and Tobiah, Geshem and the Arab and the rest of our enemies that had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it. Though up to that time, I had not set the door in the gate, in the gates. Sam Ballot and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ona. But they were scheming to harm me, so I sent messages to them with this supply, reply, I'm carrying on a great project and cannot come go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. The fifth time, Sanballat sent my his aide to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written. It is reported among the nations of Geshem, Sayeth says it is true that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become the, their king, and having have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah, now this report will get back to the king, so come and let us meet together. I sent him this reply, nothing like what you were saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. They are trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. One day I went to the house of Shema, son of Deliah, the son of Metabal, who was shut in at his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night they are coming to kill you. But I said, should a man like me run away or should someone like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had sent him, but he had not had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Shef Sanballat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so I would not I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Remember, Tobiah and Samballot, my God, because of what they have done, remembered also the prophet Nadiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Ulu in 52 days. <laughs> also, in these days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah, and replies from Tobiah kept coming to me. For many in Judah were under oath to him, since he was son-in-law to Shekhanai, son of Ira, and his son Johanan had married the daughter of Meshulam and son of Becca. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds and then telling him what I said and Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that uh, you've given it to us today to guide us. Lord, I can only imagine what it was like for Nehemiah or some of these early heroes, Lord, of your, of your work that they didn't have the living word before them to reference and look for for guidance and direction. Lord, so we thank you that's, that that's an opportunity for us this morning that we can turn to your word, that we can hear from you, that you would work in our life through it. 
Lord, make your purposes and your points accessible to us today that we'd be able to take them in, hear from you, and Lord, let our life be changed by your spirit. In your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, by way of quick review, we're in, uh, am I in front of the, I feel a little reverby. Am I reverby back there? Okay. Much, thank you. Much better. We meet Nehemiah. Um, this is chapter six of the book of Nehemiah, obviously. He's been, uh, by way of quick review, uh, lived his life as a captive in Persia. His job was as cupbearer to the king. Um, God had sent the people of Israel away as captives to teach them that the idolatry they had been practicing in Israel was unacceptable. So he let them be oppressed by an evil peoples. And we find um, in this part of the book that the capital city where Nehemiah is from, the walls are in ruin. Some of the people had gone back and started a process of rebuilding the temple but hadn't gotten to the walls of the city. When Nehemiah finds out about this, he's grieved. But as servant to the king, he walks around trying to contain his grief so it isn't noticed in that people could try to manipulate the king and the king didn't want you to look unhappy in his presence. But Nehemiah is sad enough he's found out. The king asks, why are you sad? He tells the king and is granted favor by this evil king. He's given materials to rebuild the city, He's given a century to take him there, and he's given letters to secure his safe passage back to Israel to rebuild the walls. Along the way, he comes against wicked enemies, has conflict amongst his own people, and he's, but he's overcome many of the practical aspects of rebuilding the wall. See, things we have learned so far in Nehemiah that part of the reason that God's empowered him was he was burdened by the problem. He's shown throughout Scripture to turn to the Lord repeatedly for help for these things. He's been committed to a solution. He's created a plan, built a team, and now he's in the process of running through a gauntlet of distraction and opposition. Sound like anybody's life here today. Interesting thing to note about Nehemiah is he's not a prophet per se. He's not a priest. He's not somebody who in the kingdom of Israel and in the spiritual community would have held a high post based on who he was. He was just kind of a regular guy who happened to be in the right place at the right time, submitted to the Lord, and God chose to use him in a mighty way. Yet with every stone that goes into the wall, it seems like there is another threat that comes up. I'm starting in chapter 1. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, then Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together at Hakiferim in the plain of Ono. Now, the first clue that this could be a bad place to go is that it's called Ono. Don't go to Ono. The very next verse it says, But they intended to do me harm. They intended to do me harm. My first point for today is that God's work will meet opposition. God's work will meet opposition. 
I've both watched and experienced throughout my Christian life as God starts to work in a life to turn a life around or a community around from a sense of sin or helplessness, that there appears oftentimes opposition right on the cusp of success. Maybe you've noticed this in your own life, that right after a peak, something spectacular happens, there's a valley. Just before a win, sometimes comes another challenge. Yet neither in this story or in our lives does God necessarily prevent his people from facing attack. See, the truth of the matter is there is a devil. The Bible says he's a roaring lion walking around seeking whom he can destroy. Here's the thing, though. The forces of darkness have limited resources. Amen. Our God is omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. The opposition can only put up so much resistance to God's work. And so that has to tell you that if there's spiritual opposition to what you're doing, it must mean that you're making some headway. Yet, I've heard people take that as a principle to somehow concoct that into a theory of how to live an easier life. And it goes something like this. They wonder if they could make just enough happen in life to feel accomplished but stay like just under the radar of spiritual opposition, right? Like they could get a couple things done in life, feel real successful, but without having the pain of having extraordinary conflict involved in their life and their community and in their calling. Mother Teresa said it so quickly like this, I know God won't give me anything I can't handle. I just wish he didn't trust me so much. (laughs) I'd encourage you today to not think about it that way. Keeping God's priorities, keeping God's call in your life central and pursuing those things wholeheartedly are protection unto themselves. 1 Peter 5, 8-10 says, Be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he can devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The good news of all this, we're on God's side. And spoiler alert, I've read the end of this. It turns out way good, all right? See, we may prefer a straightforward plot line in our life, something as a cruise through life with a couple spiritual challenges that pop up like waves on the horizon, that we can surf through like we're having a good time. But the reality is there may be major challenges as part of a rebuilding process. And if you don't experience that, at least in seasons of your life, you may not be engaging your calling that vigorously. Verse 3, it says, And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and cannot come down. Why should the work stop and I leave it to come down to you? They sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. 
In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. So here's what they're doing. They're calling Nehemiah to come down from the work to stop the work to deal with a tertiary issue, something that's not part of his calling in his life. And this last time, it says they sent him an open letter. An open letter. See, in the day, when they would send letters, they would roll them up in a scroll, they would seal them with wax, and if it was sent from a royal or for a king, somebody with what was called a signet ring, he would stick his signet ring in the wax to say that this letter was sealed by me and carries my official words. Why would you send an open letter? You'd send an open letter because you'd want it to be read by others. This was like pre-Facebook way to start a rumor, right? Send the servant who talks to everybody and intentionally leave that envelope open and see what happens. Make a little donation to the rumor mill in hopes to potentially discredit the project. My second point, as the Lord's purposes succeed, there will be attempts to discredit them. As the Lord's purposes succeed, there will be attempts to discredit them. Verse 6, it said, In it was written, in this one read it was written, It's reported amongst the nations in Geshem, also it says that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. Nehemiah, in this building project, it's really all about you. You've also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. So they're taking the scripture of old, talking about the coming king of Judah, and saying to Nehemiah that he is trying to be that king, the king of Judah, of course, Jesus Christ. And now the king will hear these reports, so now come, let us take counsel together. So here's what they're saying. We're spreading these rumors. These rumors are going to the king, and unless you step outside to deal with that rumor with us and talk to us on our term, we're going to continue to perpetuate this story, get you in some hot water. See, one way to attack leadership and God's uh, purposes is with innuendo with innuendo. Put a rumor out there so that anybody who hears it might doubt the integrity of the leader and or of the process. Put questions behind their motives. Make their good work for the Lord sound like it's a good work for them. And that's why they're in it. Nehemiah responds and says to him, no such things as you say have been done for you are inventing them out of your own mind. He stops just enough to reply to their rumors. See, today we may not face the violent opposition that Nehemiah had in that having people, he was trying to have people come out and try to kill him. Today in our country, those attacks may not come in the form of outward violence. Maybe today it's more like a sullied reputation, a little sarcasm and mockery. 
Rumors often start out like that, right? Like, I heard from a source. I heard from somewhere. I mean, rumors, you can spot a rumor with three clues to it. The source is never mentioned. The statement is usually exaggerated. Or the statement is actually inaccurate. But Ephesians tells us as Christians not to partake in those things. It says, let no unwholesome word come from your mouth. That word for no in Greek means none. It means none. Sometimes the best way to deal with gossip is to call it exactly what it is and tell the person saying it that you refuse to listen. See, there's a th- but there's a bigger threat in the Scripture here that if Nehemiah doesn't um, object to those rumors in the community, he may lose support in the rebuilding process. He may have people who no longer want to contribute to the wall thinking this project's for him. Or there's an even bigger threat we'll get to in a minute regarding uh, how this rumor in fact had initially stopped the rebuilding of the wall. Turn with me to Ezra chapter 4. Ezra 4, 4 through 6, it says, Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and on down to Darius, king of Persia. So here's an early attempt at rebuilding that was frustrated by these rumors. In fact, this rumor would make it all the way to the king. In chapter 19, the king writes a reply to those spreading these rumors, and it says, I issued an order and a search was made, and it was found that this city has a long history of revolt against kings and has been a place of rebellion and sedition. Jerusalem has had powerful kings ruling over the whole trans-Euphrates, and taxes, tribute, and duty were paid to them. Now, issue an order to these men to stop work so that this city will not be rebuilt until I order. Be careful not to neglect this matter. Why let this threat grow to the detriment of royal interests? As soon as the copy of the letter of King Artaxerxes was read to Rehum and Shimshai, the secretary and their associates, they went immediately to the Jews in Jerusalem and compelled them by force to stop. So this threat that's being leveled against Nehemiah has actually worked in the past. This, isn't, this is both a threat about rumor and a threat that that rumor, once it gets to the king, can be used to stop the process. One clever pastor told this story about how he dealt with rumors. And the story goes a little like this. There was a small village, and a woman had an argument with her pastor. She became so angry that she began spreading rumors about him around town. As the story goes, she became ill and called on the pastor to pray for her. 
He came, she asked his forgiveness for her gossiping, and he said, sure, but there's something you must do. Bring me a feather pillow and a basket from your home, right? Take your feather pillow, open it up, put the feathers in a basket. As soon as you get well, place the feathers in the, in the basket and bring them to me. So the woman did this. She recovered. She put all the feathers in the basket and brought them to the pastor. The pastor said, now go take this basket of feathers and scatter them all over the town and come back to me. So the woman, not knowing what she was doing, but wanting to honor her pastor, walked around the town spreading feathers, right? Streets of the town spreading feathers. She went from one end to the town of the other, and when she returned to her pastor, she said, I've done as you asked. The pastor challenged her and said, very well, now take the basket and go collect all those feathers. Every last one. She said, that's impossible. I couldn't do that. They've been trampled. The wind's blown them. They're all over the town. They're outside of the town now. And the pastor said, that's right. So is it with your words. Well, I've gladly forgiven you. Don't forget that you can never undo the damage that your words do. Charles Spurgeon, a famous English pastor, said it like this, a lie travels around the globe while the truth is still getting on its shoes. As we've seen, this rumor had a little more poignancy to it in that it could actually stop the work. In verse 9 we see, it says, For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. What he's saying is, because this is a threat that worked in the past, it's going to make our people discouraged in the work. That we've gone down this path before and it's been hauled out from under us. And in that, all the labor we're doing in the hot sun, the people might not want to do it, thinking that we're going to get to the end and we're going to run into that proverbial brick wall once again. So Nehemiah prays. He says, but now, O God, strengthen my hands. See, Nehemiah's enemies weren't dumb. They realized this tactic worked the last time. And here they were threatening to do it again and using that as leverage to either get Nehemiah away from the work or stop him entirely in stopping his life. It was an attempt to discourage God's people from doing God's work. But building a community, like Nehemiah noticed, takes a great sense of fortitude. See, Nehemiah would have to, amidst this distraction and opposition, have laser light focus on what he's doing. And he makes two really wise choices here, I feel. Number one is he calls out to God for the strength to do it. Great choice, Nehemiah. Number two, we're about to see he's going to go visit a priest. As John Nelson Darby reminded us, the presence of the Holy Spirit is keystone to all our hopes. So pray and seek holy advice. Nehemiah does that in, chapter, in verse 10. He says, Now I went to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehedabel, who was confined to his home and said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. 
Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. So what he's saying is, hey, Nehemiah, I know some things that you don't know. You're going to have to hide yourself. I've discovered this plot that's coming for you. But Nehemiah said, should such a man as I run away? See, Nehemiah's the governor, right? Back in the day, kings led their armies to war. If you were to see your leader cowering in a closet in the church, that probably wouldn't be a good sign. Unless he's praying or something, that's probably not a good place. Should such a man as I run away? What man as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And then it says, And I understood that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. What a sad day in the community when the priest has enough financial gain in the process that he would see the rebuilding undone so that he could reap financially. What this priest is doing, he's about to sell out the governor of the town who's rebuilding the city so that he can receive a payout when the wall is undone. My point number three, opposition can come from the inside. Can come from the inside. You're an Israelite governor in charge of building God's temple. You've discovered there's plans to end your life. You don't fall for those. You've dealt with discouragement in the community. You've rallied the troops through that. You realize now that there's an appeal to the king to shut down your work. And you go to the priest for help. And he's on their side too very sad moment in the history of Israel. The, in a, <laughs> let that not be said of us. Let that not be said of us. That if there were ever a, a blessing to be found in chaos in our community or things being undone, that, that we would not uh, let our own personal gain be wrought out of problems in the community. Ephesians 6, 11-12 says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. No doubt in Nehemiah's life, this is a day where he didn't have, wouldn't have had this scripture yet, but would have to walk in faith and walk in the strength and the power of the Spirit to encourage him when it felt like there wasn't those around who could help. The next verse is an encouraging one. Verse 15, it says, The wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elel, 
in 52 days, the wall was finished. After decades of the wall lying in ruin, threats, discord amongst the people, enemies wanting to take your life, it's finished. We have a wall. We have a city. We can build a community. Yet when all of our enemies heard it, and all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived this, this work had been accomplished with the help of God. After decades of the wall being broken, it was restored in 52 days. My fourth point is that God's success can be an offense to some. God's success can be an offense to some. See, these surrounding communities were afraid that if God had reinvigorated this kingdom, he may allow this people group to become stronger than they were and either push them out or take their things or conquer them in war. And sometimes today, as the church doesn't go to war in that same way, people can still find offense in God's victories based on their own insecurities. It goes like this. If Christianity commands your attention, there may be something true to it. Right? If God's perpetuating his kingdom, maybe there's a power to that whole Christianity thing. And if that Christianity thing is true, and it talks about heaven and hell, and it talks about sin and righteousness, and you feel convicted by that, you may have to examine your lifestyle. And to be quite frank with you, there's people who just don't feel comfortable doing that in light of their own sin. If you didn't know that there was a Lord as Savior to forgive your sin, that he offered grace to you for eternity and would bring you into heaven forever, sin would be an extraordinarily hard thing to look at, being that it's incurable, unconquerable on your own, and ultimately fatal. That being said, the God of all glory offers us grace in his gospel. He says that no matter how sinful you are, no matter where you've come from, he's going to perfectly redeem you, call you into heaven, make you a friend of his, and let you live with him in glory forever. Amen. Yet in verse 17 it says, Moreover, in those days the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shekinah, the son of Era, and his son Johanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him, and Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. So to back up a little bit, Tobiah was of a people group that was enemy to Israel. In different parts of the Bible, they did things like kill pregnant women. 
But yet, Tobiah was crafty and had figured out a way to have a quasi-peace for himself in living in this area. And his family intermarried and had these effectively peace accords with Israel. So here's Nehemiah having his life threatened by Tobiah. But in his social circle, Tobiah is able to build friends, rally them against Nehemiah's work, and the nobles in Judah, it says here, spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. So Israel's come to the point, they've rebuilt the temple, they've rebuilt the walls, but in certain circles of the community, it is very much not safe. The attacks weren't done. They had just become a little more subtle. Tobiah would, keep his, would use his relational currency to keep tabs on Nehemiah, seemingly to look for opportunities to sabotage the work. He's also going to criticize Nehemiah's work behind the scenes. In today's modern philosophical vernacular, we call that throwing shade. Throwing shade. See, the enemy, when he's losing a battle, he wants to make it look like he's winning. He wants to, even in the light of God's victories, leave a sense of lingering doubt or potential destruction despite very visible victories to the contrary. Our job as Christians is to hold the gospel before us, to be pursuing our calling, and to follow after him. In light of all this, how are we to live our lives? One thing we can do is, the first thing we can do is focus on the work that God has for us to do. See, in the minutia of daily relationships, it's easy for churches or communities to get distracted from the big picture focus of what God would have us do. Right? The daily interaction of personalities, the the interruptions in the workflow of the day, the highs and the lows of our families and our emotions can, if we're not careful, cause us to drift from what God's called us to do personally and what God is leading us to do as a community. There's a story of a concert violinist who was famous, and they asked her what was her secret of success. She said this, about how to master an instrument. She said, there are many things that I do, used to do that demanded my time. I went to my room after breakfast and I made my bed. I straightened the room, dusted, and I did whatever seemed necessary. And when I finished my work, I turned to my violin in practice. Yet, that system seemed to drag enough from my time I could often go much of my day and feel like there was things in the way for me practicing my violin. She said, all that changed when I reversed my priorities. She planned to neglect the non-urgent things 
until her practice period was complete. See, she found out when she focused on the most important thing and got that done, she did also have spare time to go do the other things as well. But by putting the first things first, she became more effective. As a community, we're doing a good work here. We have some awesome folks on teams. We've had some really powerful summits, some meaningful prayer nights. We're going to hear over the next 30 minutes or so about some teams and what's going on behind the scenes. There is good work here. Don't get discouraged. As Galatians 6, 9 says, let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. The second thing that we can do is to show discernment in what we say and what we listen to. One theologian said it like this, it's a sign of a perverse and treacherous disposition to wound the good name of another when that person has no opportunity of defending themselves. Another thing we can do is to expect there will be challenges and opposition. Alexander McLaren says, Anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows, but only empties today of its strengths. Don't let anxiety or potential for opposition distract you from what God has called you to do. Romans 8, 31, and then 35 through 39 says it like this. 31 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He picks up in 35 and says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger? Like, wow, that's like a deeper list than we got going on, right? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's an incredible season that we're in. And as Paul talks about his walking through trials, I want to remind us that our trials today are going to be a pittance compared to the glory that we're going to experience with God forever. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this incredible season. Lord, we appreciate your admonitions to keep us focused on the work. We pray that you are at work in us, amongst us, and leading us forward. God, we ask you, to, like Nehemiah said, strengthen our hand that we may continue the work, continue the process, and give you glory as a community for years to come. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for checking out the podcast today. We hope you've enjoyed it. For more information, you can visit AllianceBible.Church.